Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, we find out that the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami was just the latest in a series of tsunamis in that area. And they found evidence that there were at least three previous massive tsunamis. There was a fairly modestly sized one in 1907, but then there were two surprises. There was another tsunami 700 years ago and another one 1,300 years ago. And these were no mean beasts. Why elephants who avoid roads to avoid poachers may be causing further problems for the species. By avoiding roads, elephants are confining themselves to smaller and smaller patches of habitat, which could spell even more trouble for this endangered species. And how a new system of lenses could give a 360-degree view inside the body. Now, engineers at BA Systems have built a hybrid solution, which uses about nine lenses pointing in different directions so you get the full view. And then each of those, the light from them, is funneled down optic fibres onto a conventional um, light detector. So you get the advantage of the resolution of a normal image and you get the advantage of being able to look in all directions. It's much, much lighter. You can do it about the size of a sugar cube. That's all on the way. Now, anyone who watched the images of the Boxing Day tsunami back in 2004 was totally gobsmacked by the un- by what was really the awesome power of nature and the awesome uh, devastation that it unleashed. We all said that at the time, this is something which is without precedent. We'd never seen the likes of it before. But now there are two papers this week in the journal Nature, back-to-back. This is Amy Prendergast, who's from Geoscience Australia, and a second group led by Katrin Manika, who's at Kent State University in Ohio. And they've found evidence that, in fact, this is, isn't at all without precedent. The tsunamis have happened several times in the past, possibly even three times. And the way they've done this is to go to Sumatra in one case and Thailand in another case, and they have taken core samples, basically just by drilling down through the surface of marshy areas called swales that are back behind the beach of these coastal regions. And if you imagine two ridges which have a U-shaped depression between them, this is where these swales are. And the theory is pretty simple. If you have a big tsunami, it will wash sand and gravel and other deposits over the ridge and deposit it in this swale, in the U-shaped deposit of the marshy area, and it will form a layer there. Over time, this is covered by other debris and material and filled in. And if you take a core sample, you can go back through the timeline and see these layers which correspond to the tsunamis. And because there's organic debris mixed in with that sand and gravel, you can do carbon dating to work out when it happened. And that's exactly what they've done. And they found evidence that there were at least three previous massive tsunamis. There was a fairly modestly sized one in 1907. And the fact that this has a historical record to go with it bears out the fact that this is probably a reasonable way to do this study. But then there were two surprises. There was another tsunami 700 years ago and another one 1,300 years ago. And these were no mean beasts. The waves that were unleashed on Sumatra were about 35 metres high, and the waves that were unleashed on Thailand in these historical cases were about 20 metres high, so absolutely massive and devastating. And the key question the researchers are saying is, well, what about the people that still live on the beaches in these places today? They have to make a decision between having an easy life and a livelihood living by the sea or living safely. Do we have any idea that it's the same cause of all these different tsunamis? Is it the same area of tectonic trouble, if you like, that's whipping up all these problems time and again 
throughout history? One suggests that the answer to that is almost certainly yes, because, of course, the geology is pretty much the same. And when we had the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, this was about a 1,500-kilometre section of um, fault line underneath the ocean, which had hundreds of years of pent-up stress, where the fault fault was the collision of these two tectonic plates. They were pressing against each other. They weren't giving. They were just storing energy elastically, and then they suddenly went. And this unleashed a huge amount of energy all at once. We think the same thing's probably been happening time and time again, and this, this certainly lends credence to that, yeah. Okay, so now for something slightly different. Now, conventional loudspeakers work by passing a current through a coil that's near a magnet. The current creates its own magnetic field, and so it's pushed or pulled by the magnet. If you keep changing the current, you'll keep moving the coil backwards and forwards. If you attach a cone onto the end of that, that'll move the air. So you create vibrations in the air. With the right set of currents, you can get music. However, as you've probably noticed, if you ever tried to lug one around, loudspeakers are very large, heavy and unwieldy things. Now, Chinese researchers have come up with an, possibly come up with an alternative. They've produced sheets of roughly aligned 10 nanometer carbon nanotubes. They then applied an electric current to them. Um, and I guess I have a feeling that this was rather a surprise to them. They suddenly found that sound was coming out. Um, and then I mean, so just to put this in perspective, a, a nanometer, one, 10 nanometers, that's about a hundred thousandth of a millimeter across, isn't it? It's absolutely tiny. Yeah, so they've sort of made a sort of felt out of lots and lots of these nanotubes, lie, lay them down, form a material out of them, pick it up. It's very, very thin, virtually transparent. Um, they, they was kind of, I think they were probably quite surprised at the sound coming out of this because it's not the sort of thing you'd expect. They, so they had a look at it. They tried to see what was happening. They shot, shot a laser at the surface, and the surface wasn't moving, so that even confused them even more. And what they think's going on is that carbon nanotubes have got a very, very low specific heat capacity, which means it takes very little energy to heat them up. So if you put a current through them, they get very hot very quickly. So the temperature increases up to maybe 80 degrees centigrade. Um, if you, that's going to heat up the air around them. The air gets hot, it expands, um, and then when the current drops away, they, they cool down again and the air shrinks again. So you get this vibration in the air because the air is expanding and shrinking and expanding and shrinking. You get a sound like this. Now, the advantage of these things is instead of being a big, heavy, unwieldy thing, you, can get set, you just have to make a sheet the same size as you would do a normal speaker. So you, and they're transparent, so you put them in front of an LCD screen on a monitor or an iPod. Um, and because they've got such a low specific heat capacity, they're quite efficient. It's actually not a very new idea. People discovered it over 100 years ago using little platinum foils. The problem is it takes so much energy to heat up and cool down the platinum foil, it's incredibly inefficient. But with these um, carbon nanotubes, it should be a lot better. And what are the applications? Um, well, if you want to get a nice big speaker on something light, like a mobile phone, then you could just put one of these over the surface of the mobile phone, maybe. Um, or if you wanted to put a, get a really big one, you could hang it on a piece of glass. Um, anywhere where you want to big speaker which is light and it doesn't take much energy to run it for the reason you've outlined that the amount of heating effect is is tiny and therefore um the the energy consumption will be low um yeah it's probably probably not that much better than a normal speaker but it's definitely a huge hugely better than the similar ones before and now to another heavy, unwieldy, huge thing that creates lots of loud noise, forest elephants living in West African Africa's Congo Basin, which, according to a new study, have learnt to avoid roads, probably because they realise that where there are roads, there are poachers with guns. Now, that's according to the study published in the online journal PLOS One this week, led by Stephen Blake from the Wildlife Conservation Society. Now, Blake and his team have shown that by avoiding roads, elephants are confining themselves to smaller and smaller patches of habitat, which could spell even more trouble for this endangered species. Now they did this by putting 28 um, collars on these elephants with global positioning tracking systems on them.
them and essentially followed their movements around the forest in the Congo Basin. And it soon became very clear to them that the elephants were really avoiding the roadways and even in areas where poachers were kept out, um, they were nowhere near roads. And in fact, during the entire study, only a single elephant was recorded crossing a road. And when it did, it dashed across about 14 times its normal pace. So we might assume that um, if these wonderful intelligent elephants, which we know, you know, they are clever creatures, have they've learned to avoid roads and poachers. So maybe this is a good thing because few of them will be shot. But like I said, the real problem is, is with the current huge increase in road building in areas like this, which is carving up these remaining areas of intact forest and leaving elephants with these really contracting areas of, of forest, which might not have enough resources and food for them to survive. So it's actually putting a, a lot of pressure on those local areas and devastating... Well, yes, that's one way of looking at it, certainly on the forest. And then, you know, the elephants themselves might not survive. There could be a knock-on effect also on those ecosystems because it's thought that elephants roaming this large area play a really important role in seed dispersal. And if that's disrupted, then that really could interfere with the functioning of the forests. And I guess the other problem is that if the elephants aren't moving very far, they're not meeting other elephants, so they could get very inbred if you're not careful. Absolutely, yes. And the, the, the sort of the social aspect and the genetic aspect is something that really could be a problem as well. I think the bit of good news we could look at on this uh, story is that the researchers suggest that maybe some relatively simple and cheap planning measures could be introduced, which could make a real difference for the elephants. So if we really think carefully, um, the people who can make these decisions about where roads are built, um, then maybe we can try and minimise just how much these elephants are confined by their fear of roads. There was a, a similar but almost opposite finding conducted in Yellowstone Park in the US where scientists were studying the movement of moose and they found that moose avoid bears and because bears avoid roads, because roads mean people and bears are scared of people, the bears avoid the roads so the mooses have all moved to breed along the roads. But now, unfortunately, the bears are learning that that's where the moose go and because they want to eat the moose, they're now moving closer to the roads and this is bringing the bears closer to people so it's sort of going round and round in circles. But lots of clever animals out there, that's for sure. Now, here's another interesting application of technology. Um, Digital cameras are brilliant at looking in one direction, which is normally what you want to do if you're taking a picture of things. You're looking at something, you want to take a picture of that thing. But sometimes you need to see out around the sides as well. Now, the conventional solution to to this problem is normally either building a camera which moves around and keeps scanning all the way around you, which is quite heavy and complicated and breaks down a lot. Or you use something called a fisheye lens, which is a very, very curved lens. It's almost hemispherical. So it will bend the light in from right at the sides into the camera. So you get it on, on your camera picture, you get pictures from the sides as well as straight ahead. Now, this is quite a big lump of glass and very heavy. Now, insects solve this problem by essentially having thousands of separate lenses, each point in different directions and each one of them produces a single pixel of the image. Now people have tried to do this but it's quite difficult to make because you've got to have lots and lots of things pointing in different directions and you tend, and because of this you tend up to end up with quite a low resolution image because you can't put in enough pixels. Now engineers at BA Systems have built a hybrid solution which uses about nine lenses pointing in different directions so you get the full view and then each of those, the light from them is funneled down optic fibres onto a conventional um, light detector so you get the advantage of the resolution of a normal image and you get the advantage of being able to look in all directions you would do a fisheye camera but it's much, much lighter you can do it about the size of a sugar cube um, and they're looking at putting it on either missiles because missile, if something is trying to chase something which is go- moving very quickly, it can, it can end up right to the side of you, so it can get so it can still see it and it can't dodge. Or possibly for if you're examining inside body cabinet cavities using an endoscope, you want to be able to see the things around the side as well. That's fantastic. I hadn't thought of the endoscope idea. My mind immediately jumped to shopping centres and anti-shoplifting systems. 
actually, well, yeah. Because they have to, the, there are all these blind spots that the thieves work out where they are, where the cameras can't overlap. And if you had a load of those systems that, that, that you've just mentioned plumbed in, then that ought to nobble them, shouldn't it? Maybe you ought to patent it quick. <laughs> Maybe I should. Helen. Well, I'm going to take a step back in time now to a time when the saber-toothed tigers roamed the earth and with news this week of a study that has suggested that these toothy predators were not lone hunters but may in fact have lived in packs like many social carnivores do today. Now, that's according to Chris Carbone from the Zoological Society of London and his colleagues writing in the journal Biology Letters this week. And the unusual thing that Carbone and his colleagues did, which I think is really quite clever, was to study modern-day carnivores um, uh, in Africa to help understand what their ancient ancestors were doing many, many thousands of years ago. Now, there are ancient tar pits in Los Angeles, the Rancho La Brea, I think that's how it's pronounced, um, which contain the fossilised remains of over 2,000 saber-toothed tigers. Um, and these um, cats, we think, came to these tar pits to feed on prey that got stuck in this sticky tar. And they all kind of <laughs> ended up getting tangled up and entombed in this, in this area and fossilised for us to look at. But the researchers wondered whether all these cats came individually to these um, tar pits or whether they actually arrived together in groups. Um, like prides of lions. And so as a way of investigating this, they played back, played back the recorded sounds of prey animals in distress, both in the Serengeti region of Tanzania and in the Kruger National Park in South Africa. And there were the same sorts of sounds we think that the saber-toothed tigers might have heard thousands of years ago from these wailing prey animals trapped and dying in the tar pits. Now, what they found was that the number of large social carnivores today that were turning up to these recordings was much greater than we would have expected based on the overall population size of these creatures. So around 84% of the animals that came to these, t- these speakers um, were actually lions and hyenas, which are both social animals. Now, the key to the story is that that's weirdly the same proportion of um, animals at the tar pits in Los Angeles that were both um, these saber-toothed tigers and something else called the dire wolf, which I think is hinting very strongly that these were also social animals that were roaming around in gangs, which is a much more efficient way of scavenging for food. It's an amazing thing to think that you can also use indices from today, uh, markers from today to see what was happening in the past. Absolutely, with these wonderful creatures with these huge long teeth that we can't really imagine (laughs) living today. And exactly, but living in a similar way and doing similar things to creatures still around today. So it's wonderful. Thank you, Helen. Well, to finish up, there's an amazing sort of, well, I suppose a concept that every cloud has a silver lining, which is that in the Second World War, towards the end of the Second World War, there was a blockade on part of the Netherlands, which resulted in people being almost starved to death. It was called the uh, Winter Famine. And people there were surviving on 100 grams of food a day. That's about 500 calories on a good day, which is about 25% of the amount of energy that you or I would need to eat on, on the average day to keep us just in neutral weight balance. What was the impact of this? Well, obviously, people began to starve to death, but there was also another knock-on effect, which was some of those people got pregnant at the same time. And those children that were conceived at that time are still alive today. And so one of the things that's emerged amongst that population is that they have a higher risk of high blood pressure, heart disease, being overweight and having um, diabetes. But no one actually can explain why. There's just this association between low birth weight and these subsequent life events. And now a group of researchers actually from the Netherlands, this is Bas Hymans and his colleagues, and they're based at Leiden University, have recruited 60 of those people who were conceived during the Dutch war famine, and they have sequenced their genetic materials, so they've examined the the DNA, and they've specifically looked at a gene called IGF-2, which is insulin-like growth factor 2. It's a growth factor-associated gene. And in particular, they were interested in looking at a, a 
something called methylation because DNA can be controlled not just by turning genes on and off like flicking a switch but also you can control the amount of the expression of a gene by adding chemical groups called methyl groups directly onto the DNA letters and this acts a bit like a cellular dimmer switch it can turn genes up and down and when they studied these people who'd been starved they found that the number of methyl groups on their DNA was about 5% less than their brothers or sisters who were obviously born in the same family had the same upbringing ate the same food and have largely otherwise been exposed to all the same things as them and so the only factor they don't share in common pretty much is exposure to this famine and what what this if elegantly shows is that when you're a baby just developing inside your mother there's a critical window period when certain genetic tags are set which will have a knock-on effect in your life for the rest of your life and so there's this long-term impact and there are two spin-offs. One of the things that um, you might say is, well, what can you do about that? Well, the answer is, one, you can guide pregnant women in how to make sure you get plenty of the right sorts of nutrients to make sure this doesn't happen and avoid toxins that could make this happen. But also, because we now understand that this is the case, it might be possible to have tests, which you could do on, on all individuals, just to see what the status of the methylation is of various genes in order to see what their lifetime risk is. And who knows, in the future, we may also be able to reset that methylation pattern in order to reduce someone's risk of getting various diseases like that. Is the reason why there might be a mechanism like this? Because if you're more likely to get diabetes, you'd probably also be more likely to get a... With all these kind of diseases, you're also more likely to survive a famine. So if you were in, in, if you're in a, a fetus when there's obviously a famine around, there's probably going to be another famine. So there's some mechanism there evolved in order to make you more immune to them. That's right. So um, when, where we've all come from, the genetic legacy we inherited from our cavemen ancestors was that we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. We had lean years when we lived in caves with no food and we all half starved and then there might be a bumpy year the next year. So it, it favoured people whose genes told them store energy, store energy. The thing is that when you turn up those genes by this sort of process and then live a life where there isn't a shortage of food, such as is the case today, then you see these knock-on genetic effects, so it can have lifelong consequences. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the newsflash, why not try out the weekly Naked Scientists podcast, featuring news, interviews with top scientists, your questions, and a kitchen science experiment for you to try out at home. We'll be back with another roundup of great science next week. The Naked Scientists newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.